somebody who can't for the life of them ever organize themselves. That would be a chronic flow pattern. So somebody is always late. It's always like, oh, I, I you know, I wasn't called to show up today to the meeting. Um, you know, I can't get out of bed without my green juice. I'm not feeling a full-bodied yes. Oh, what day was our meeting? Oh, I didn't pay the rent. You know, that would be that would be a chronic flow pattern. Meaning somebody who isn't capable of mobilizing any focus or go. So the key would be to have both available so that, for instance, when I wrote this book, this next book is going to be hopefully a bit different, but when I wrote this book, um, I had to constantly go between meditating to actually get my shit together in my head right, and focus myself and doing nonlinear in order to kind of feel, you know, get, get feeling sense back because I'd like wildly fluctuate. I'd be like having a moment where I'd do, you know, just write and write and write and write and then I'd be like, where am I? What is it? Where is it going? Which chapter is it? You know, and then I'd have to focus my mind and go, okay, write a chapter outline, check it off a book, you know. So you, you can learn both and then have both available. Uh, the problem is only if you're stunted in one or the other, or if you're so overloaded in one or the other that you can't balance yourself. Sometimes these are also trauma patterns okay. right, that have nothing to do with energy flow necessarily. They do affect the energy flow because if you put a lot of attention on the lower body, that will affect the energy flow. But for instance, Let's say if you, you know, when we talk about chronic masturbation in a man, for instance, right, um, you're depleting so much energy with, with constant ejaculation that you, it's, a, it's a bypass. You're not actually feeling anything at that point. Now you're just bypassing another emotion, potentially. Number three in the barriers to intimacy and embodiment is, of course, trauma, where when you have had uh, extreme fight-or-flight events um, and it wasn't processed, there's a pattern, a coping pattern that forms. I describe trauma or define trauma for the sake of the way I'm teaching as an injury that necessitated a response, right? And so within the context of that, um, the more response you have in a body that hasn't dealt with, the more you will be creating pathways that you'll always jump on. And that's to answer your question when you said you couldn't get off the, the pathway. You're just spinning on established patterns of, of high um, excitation with no regulation and it loops. We have four, you know, <laughs> fright, flight, freeze and fawn. In the olden days, when I went to university, it wasn't called fawn, it was called the Stockholm Syndrome, which is essentially having to align yourself with your oppressor for survival. Right? Uh, but freeze is an intelligent um, design because freeze essentially allows you to hunker down in the tall grass when the marauding tribes are coming. And that's really important to understand because everything we know about freeze, when you see it in the context of having had to hide in the bushes, it makes perfect sense. So what happens if you have to hide in the bushes motionless for long periods of time during an extreme 
um, you know, life-threatening event. Well, first thing that has to happen is you've got to get immobilized, particularly your legs. If you start twitching and trembling and stuff like that, you, the bush will shake, so to speak, right? So first thing that happens in a freeze event, if you're sensitive, you know that your legs feel numb and heavy. Then the next thing that happens is your entire nervous system powers down and you're actually having slow heartbeat, slow breathing, slow metabolism, so that you can stay in that place for much longer than you usually could. And very often, I once worked with uh, some um, emergency room physicians, and very often uh, in emergency rooms, people who are in a free state are not diagnosed properly because their vitals are normal or below normal. And so it's a, it's a really interesting thing. Nowadays, people have a lot more education on it. Then the next thing that's also important to understand is what they call flat affect. Right? Why would you want to have flat affect? Your face isn't moving. Well, because you can't be seen in the bushes if you're not going, you know, like that. <laughs> and no blinking either, right? So it's blink, no blinking and the glassy dispersed look that you see in people with acute freeze makes perfect sense. Don't blink, less movement, less chance of being found. Wide gaze, see everything. Don't close your eyes so that you don't miss anything. But the most important one for the, for the sake of, let's say, relationship and intimacy is that when you are in freeze, you actually feel fine. Be fine, you feel fine. Because, and a lot of time you hear people say, gosh, I'm taking this disaster really well. I feel totally zen. <laughs> yes, that's called freeze, right? Because if you're internally totally spun out, you can't stay externally calm. So a lot of times freeze people don't feel that anything's wrong because they feel fine. And so if this happens to you, one of the things that's always important is wiggling your fingers, wiggling your toes, feeling your ass in your seat, starting to move your body, blinking, 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 looking down on your feet. And then if you feel that stuff starts bubbling up, then that was a freeze. After all of that, you still feel zen, then you're enlightened. <laughs> um, well, it's very hard when you start a new relationship to go, hey, what is the voice of your negative imprint, right? <laughs> it would be nice if humans came with a manual, right? By the way, those index cards you have, they are like a manual now, you know, in a certain way. But, um, but if you know your own, then you can pretty much bet that whomever you want to be in relationship with has the reciprocal ones. That's just how it goes, right? So meaning if you have something like, oh, I'm not good enough, they'll probably have something similar, but it makes them act differently. So with good enough, it's typically one becomes a people pleaser, the other one refuses to please, for instance, right? So. I'm not going to do anything I can't do right anyway. And the other one goes, but love me, love me, love me. I'll do anything you want just so that I'm good enough, right? And so those play together, for instance. So then there's the chasing there in, in the negative sense. But of course, 
in, in, there's positive too, so maybe they're not good enough. The positive aspect is somebody who's really generous and uh, abundant. And then the reciprocal of that is somebody who has a huge capacity for, let's say, new adventures and taking you somewhere new or stuff like that. So it's not all bad. It's just that these things are, as you saw yesterday, restrictive. They don't allow you to make choices outside of that conditioning. So the best way to work with that is to make sure that you know yours and that you can disengage them at times. That's the best way. Because that then disengages in the other person. So I just worked with somebody where essentially every time she gets, um, she has a thing around abandonment. So every time she feels like she's being abandoned, she gets very aggressive. Like aggressive, but denying, right? She goes, well, fuck you, then I'll do it all by myself, right? And, and his abandonment um, essentially kicks in where he goes, well, then I can't, I can't contribute to you, so I'm worthless. And then he pulls back. And then that makes her more angry. And so, he, so that would be like she gets fight and he gets freeze, so to speak. And so when you understand these loops, then what you can do, this t it typically takes the help of a good professional. Negative motivators are typically seen as more effective than positive no motivators in the nervous system. Um, and you know, they, it, it's not just because it's familiar, yeah, that's one habit, is one big driving force in humans. But aside from habit, reward systems are the other thing that drives humans. And interestingly enough, negative or, or let's say challenging um, demand is more, creates more motivation. And then, of course, um, the other one is whatever gives you the biggest hit of dopamine is what you're going to do. And if you happen to be able to cope with, with that negative effect, mm -hmm. with, a, with a dopamine spike, so to speak, then that's what your body wants. Okay. And that requires reprogramming on a, a reward level. So the reward for, the neg for, for counteracting or uh, stemming the negative is much bigger than the reward for listening to the positive. And that makes perfect sense because, you know, um, overcoming an <laughs> obstacle is much more rewarding than, yeah, getting it for free, right? There is something in humans that goes, yeah, yeah. you know, like and particularly if you have that in your system, the reward of the negative, overcoming the negativity is way bigger, feels like a much bigger spike than the you know, lukewarm, soothing water of the positive. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very nuanced situation, right? This is kind of a exploring therapy situation, not get a quick fix in Q&A situation. I want to just say that because it's super nuanced. But in general, when you have an existing groove, meaning you've, you've carved the pathway within coping with a trauma, then what typically happens is you want to keep that groove open, right? So meaning whatever you had to cope with and however you coped with is now a neuropathway. It's a pattern. And that pattern is the strongest pattern. So when in doubt, 
you're always gonna wanna go on that pattern and not onto the overgrown bush path that's a different pattern. But the only way to whack open the overgrown bush path into a proper roadway is to go down there often. So it could very well be that your willingness to go there or expose yourself is just keeping the freeway open, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And it might be a good idea to put a roadblock there and make yourself go down you know, the overgrown path till that becomes the new freeway. So um, that said, of course, some things are out of our uh, control. And when we do have to cope, it's good to turn towards the coping. So meaning if you are in a situation where you can't avoid dealing with it, it's like I was saying with the lion and the gazelle, you want to be the lion, not the gazelle, because that does something different to the nervous system. If you go, all right, got to deal with this full on, it's a different feeling than, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, I don't want to do it, but here it is, right? So there's that aspect, but in general, if, you, if we wouldn't talk about emotional trauma, but let's say a broken leg, right, which is also a trauma, um, you wouldn't say to me, oh, I've broken my leg before and it's healed somewhat. I'm limping a bit, but it's fine. But now that I've broken my leg again, I just want to walk on it because the last time it healed and I walked on it. You wouldn't do that you would not walk on that break, right? And so that's the important thing is that you have to decide, do you really need to expose yourself to this just because you know how? You know, you feel the broken leg once doesn't mean you should break your leg again so that you can heal it again. That's not actual healing, that's re-injury that you just need know how to heal better because you've done it before. You know how to put that thing, that cast thingy on or whatever. But that's not the same as actually healing. You're, you're healing the next injury, but you could also just not break your leg. You can regulate the nervous system in many ways. It doesn't have to be exercise. Uh, you know, if you hug somebody who you love, you also regulate your nervous system, produce some real good, feel-good hormones that also empty your cup. So there's many ways to empty the cup. Movement of all sorts is definitely one of the most effective and quickest and most reliable ways to empty the cup, but not the only one. When you speak to a true meditator, they will swear that nothing empties their cup as fast as meditating. But once again, what we're talking about and why we're talking about that is practice. You have to do it all the time for it to actually work when you need it acutely, right? The quicker, the more you practice, the quicker these things kick in. And very often, if you have good practice, your body self-regulates without you actually having to go, oh my God, I'm almost full, right? It just happens. You, you get that urge to have to move or the urge to take a nap or things like that. <laughs>